Hey, you're listening to the Seven Hills Church Podcast. If you want to learn more about the church, including upcoming service times in both our Cincinnati, Ohio, and Florence, Kentucky locations, visit us online at sevenhillschurch.tv. We hope this message helps you win the day. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, and Jesus had raised whom Jesus, Jesus had raised from the dead. Here dinner was given to Je- in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Drop down to verse nine. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well for an account of him, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd had come for the festival because they heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna or victory now or save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey or a colt and sat on it as it is written. This, there's three main things I want to look at in this story quickly. I'm going to talk about Palm Sunday. I feel like it's appropriate to do that. Uh, so I know we've probably heard things before on it. I'm not going to maybe add a ton new, but I hope that I can add this thought to it. One of the pieces of the story that is very pronounced is that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And so I wrote this title down, if you're taking notes, and it's, Does God Still Cry? Does God Still Cry? There's three primary things that you have to focus on before we get to that thought, and it's the, the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem, who he went to Jerusalem with, and when, specifically when he chose to make this entrance, is, they're all very, very important to look at. So first of all, the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem is a major statement. Most of the time you see Jesus, he's leaving Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is a, a religious headquarters, uh, so this is, this is not a safe place for Jesus. You might remember after many of his miracles, he would ask people to not uh, tell anyone about what had happened to them, specifically who performed the miracle. And so Jesus was having to consider that his enemies were out there trying to kill him. So the fact that he's not leaving Jerusalem, but he's entering Jerusalem, he's going into the this place of great danger, he's taking a major risk and he's going in in a very public grand way is important to take note of. That he's he's not walking in, he's not sneaking in, he's not finding a back hidden gate, he's he's not walking into this situation in stealth, he is not on some undercover assignment. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and he chose specifically to enter on a donkey. In Jesus's time, if you rode in on a stallion, it would speak of that king and that nation being at war. If you entered on a donkey, that would speak to that nation being in a time of peace. And so what most people overlook is not just the when he, or I'm sorry, the, the how he entered or the way he entered, but they miss who he entered with. And the story says that Jesus would have had right beside him one of the greatest miracles he had ever performed, and Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead, is walking right beside him. 
And so the city of Jerusalem, you have to imagine it, it is buzzing, it is, it is filled with anticipation in an electric, at an electric level because Jesus is entering, he's on this donkey, and Lazarus is there beside him. And that sets the stage for a little bit about what's happening. The crowd that's gathered there would have heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. In the midst of this crowd would have been those who had sat at Jesus' feet and heard his teaching. There would have been the apostles that were there. There would have been uh, those who had partaken of the boy's lunchbox that Jesus had multiplied and fed thousands with it. In that crowd would have been the woman who Jesus had raised her son from the dead. There, the widow of Nain, I believe, off the top of my head. There would have been uh, the, the father who Jesus had raised that young 12-year-old girl from the dead. There would have been blind Bartimaeus. There would have been those who had partaken of Jesus's ministry and specifically been a recipient of miracles would have been in that crowd. There also would have been his enemies, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were threatened by Jesus's influence, his enemies, those who were plotting to kill him. On top of all of that would have been the Roman government's watchful eye looking for even the scent of an uprising. And this is the setting that he's entering into Jerusalem with. And he's entering with Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead. So think about it this way, that the, the way he enters and the who he enters with is significant, but it's also significant to look at when he enters. So he's entering at the time of Passover. This would be equivalent to Times Square in New York City on New Year's Eve. So it is an electric time. Many scholars believe this would have been the only time in Jewish history where Pilate had canceled all the feasts in Jerusalem and allowed them to celebrate all four major feasts at one time. So this would be equivalent to us having Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve all at the same time. And Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem like this. So he's on a donkey. He's announcing that he's king through that very act. He enters with Lazarus, who was dead for four days. He raised from the dead and he enters also at the peak time possible in Jerusalem. And so this environment is what sets the stage for the moment that the people grab their palm branches and they're waving them, they're laying their coats on the ground, they're shouting Hosanna or victory now or save now, which had a message in and of itself. Palm branches specifically were a practice that was about 200 years old. It was a result of a Syrian king, a bloodthirsty Syrian king had oppressed Israel for many years. He was so evil and so bloodthirsty. He slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies and made the high priest drink the blood of that pig. The Maccabee brothers, a small family, started some like guerrilla warfare type efforts to overthrow the Assyrian army. And miraculously, they were successful at pushing the Assyrian army out 
of Jerusalem and Israel and the people spontaneously waved their palm branches saying when they were waving their palm branches, it was a representation of freedom from oppression. So for 200 years, that's what the palm branch represented. When people waved the palm branches, they were saying freedom from oppression. So the way he entered, the who he entered with and the wind makes this moment where Jesus is trying to say, all of this is for a purpose. All of this has a message. All of this is, there's a point he's trying to make. He's not just randomly grabbing a donkey. He's not just picked a random time of year. He's not, he's not just grabbed some random people to go with him. All of this is important for us to consider what he's trying to say. Because they're waving the palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna, what they're saying is they're believing that Jesus is coming to save them and free them from Roman oppression. They think that this is the beginning of a war. They believe this is the beginning of a fight. And it's clear that they missed the Palm Sunday message. Jesus was not riding on a stallion to announce he was a king of a great war. He's riding lowly on a colt or a donkey saying he is king, but he's a different type of king. He's the king of peace. If Jesus was here today, he would not be announcing a fight or a battle or a war. He would be trying to help his people hear how we can bring peace to a world that's at war and to people that are at war. His message is peace. His law is love and his way is humility. He passes through the crowded streets there in Jerusalem. They're shouting Hosanna. They're throwing their palm branches down. He gets to the outskirts of the city. He looks back over the city. And in Luke 19, it begins to walk us through what he sees. As he hears their cries, as he looks at the palm branches, his heart sinks in his chest. And the Bible says he overlooks the city of Jerusalem because they're sheep without a shepherd. He begins to weep. And he begins to cry. He begins to cry simply because of something that's happening in their hearts. And he knows that what's happening is not what he came to create. He knows they're missing it. He knows they're off. So does God still cry? Does God still cry? We would know that Jesus cried two times in scripture, both in the same week, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And right here, he's weeping over the multitudes and he's weeping because they've missed the point for why he came. The Bible says that he cries for the entire city. These are people that he saw their faces. He looked in their eyes. He was touched with their infirmities. He was touched by their hurts and their pain. He experienced their heartbreaks. And in all that he's done, they still don't understand why he came. And so he pulled away and he began to weep. He weeps because of missed possibilities. He weeps because of missed opportunities. He's weeping because of the missed potential. And really he's weeping because of the missed message of Palm Weekend. The New Living Translation 
says it like this in Luke 19, 42, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. What Jesus was weeping over was they missed the message of Palm Sunday. They missed the reason Jesus came. They missed what he spent his whole life proclaiming. And 2,000 years later, I wonder if the church is still in the same place. I wonder if we were to ask ourselves, are we like the Jewish people? Have we missed the message of Palm Sunday? Have we looked at Holy Week and missed the point of why Jesus came? Think about it like this, that when we look at our personal worlds, how many of us are at war with ourselves? How many of us are beating ourselves up? We're hard on ourselves. We're overly critical of ourselves. And really the truth is when we look at what's happening inside, uh, we're worse to ourselves than our greatest critic. You think about the worst enemy you've ever had and the things that they may be said about you. And then think about the things you say to yourself about yourself. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war in our homes. We're at war in our marriages. We're at war with our children. Anybody here? We're at war with God. We're at war. We're at war. We're at war. We're in church. We'll sing Hosanna. But the truth is, we're going to leave here and we're going to go right back to our hands up. And we go right back to fighting. So does God still weep? I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he does. Some would say, well, there's no tears in heaven. The Bible says he wipes every tear from our eyes. I agree. I agree. Our eyes, there's none of our tears, but I don't know if his tears are there. I don't know if his tears are there. So there's three areas that God came to bring peace. Number one, peace with ourselves. Peace with ourselves. Just to take a minute and help you understand because a lot of people say, no, 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 you got to read it. We're an army. We're God's army. We're here to fight. We're here to battle. We're here to war. The world is evil. We're here to combat the world. That's why we're here. Okay, go to Ephesians chapter six. Read about the armor of God. Right? We are soldiers. We are in an army. That is true. That is true. And now let's look at the weapons that we've got. Right? They're wet. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. The the, the bell of truth, the feet shots of peace. You, are you seeing it? And the whole text is written around the idea of prayer. And on top of that, Paul announced, if you're wondering what the fight looks like, the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spirit. So you are an army. You are in a battle. There is a war. You are a soldier, but the battle is not to be fought with yourself. It's to be fought against the devil. You're not fighting people. You're fighting the enemy. They didn't get it either. No, let's fight. Let's take up arms. Let's do it. Jesus weeps. They missed it. It was hidden from their eyes. Secondly, you have to be at peace with others. And only God can really make you at peace with others. Think about the world that we live in, how combative it is, how hostile it is, the strife, the contention all around us. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to reflect the world. 
the spirit of the world. But the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. Our job is to figure out how to manufacture peace in environments that are hostile. That's our job, which, by the way, is not an easy job. And just 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 to give you just a second, this a lot of people think, well, peace means I should have no spine. I should have no backbone. Uh, My morals should be neutral. Whatever goes should go. We should never make a statement. We should never uh, stand up. That's not peace is not the absence of conflict. And sometimes we're at peace with the very things God's at war with. So I'm not saying peace does not mean you don't have to take a stand. I'm not saying that I'm saying that peace is very clear. It's very clear that you can be at peace with others. You, you, you're not my enemy. They're not my enemy. The world's not my enemy. Uh, this political party's not my enemy. That political party's not my enemy. There is a spirit at work in the earth. And that spirit is at work to destroy and to kill and to steal. And our job as God's people is to bring peace to the middle of the spiritual battles that are going on. So peace with ourselves, peace with us. And then most importantly, peace with God. You can't be at peace with yourself if you're not at peace with him. You can't be at peace with others if you're not at peace with God. Amen. Peace that passes all understanding is what the Bible says. You can say, I don't understand anything you're talking about. I just want to fight. I get it. It passes all understanding. It's a supernatural peace. You say, well, well, you don't understand what's going on outside these walls. You're ignorant. No, I understand that there was a great storm that was raging against the disciples and they're in the middle of, of the ocean in the middle of the sea. And in that moment, Jesus is in the bow of the ship and he's sleeping and they come down there and they're screaming. We're going to die. We're going to die. We don't have, it's all over. The, the, the sky is falling and Jesus is sleeping. He's like, you guys, you guys don't get it. And he just says, peace. Point is, is you, you can have a circumstance on the outside that's completely trying to destroy your life but be at peace on the inside. You can't have peace. You can't have peace in spite of what's going on in the circumstances around you. I like to call them serpent stances. Just the way the enemy wants to use circumstances to pull us out of the position of peace that God's called us to. If you enjoyed today's message, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you want to experience daily content, messages, and inspiration, go ahead and sign up for Daily Bread with PM by visiting sevenhillschurch.tv slash dbpm. Thanks for listening to the Seven Hills Church Podcast.